Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is... Well, uh, my name is Freya Shivi, as they know me in the United States, uh, Freya uh, in Latin America. And my parents uh, would say Freya Shivi, and if I hear that said by anybody, it scares me and I run. So Freya or Freya is fine. And I didn't ask you, I'm just, I just assumed you were going to do this in English, but do you want to do it in Spanish or do you want to do it in English? Depends on the kind of audience. No, no, I'm fine uh, either way, but uh, I guess English is good because we have always spoken English uh, together and it seems like the language that, I don't know, I think of you and I think in English. I think in English, yeah. So I really appreciate your telling us that story about different ways of saying your name. You know, in Latin America, I'm, there's always a pause before saying Toby because it's such a foreign sounding word. Whereas Freya, they can read it and get it. They can say it, even if it's not how you would say it. But Toby, there's always this long pause, sort of intake of breath, and then looking from side to side, then <laughs> Toby, you know, this wonderfully yeah. long O. And then Shivi would be a bit difficult for some of them, but not awful. Miller is weird. It's either, you know, if they're very Argentine, it's Miger, which I really like. Miger. It makes me sound exotic. Yeah. You know, it sounds pretty, yes. <laughs> it sounds pretty and exotic, and those are two things that I'm not, but would quite like to be. Anyway, <laughs> enough of it talking about me, although it is my favorite topic. I wanted to know. Now I don't know what I'm going to say. Freya, Freya. Just yeah, just call Freya. me Freya. I'm going to try Freya. Um, I'm wondering what's going on at the moment that is holding you back, exciting you driving you forward, interesting you, concerning you. Okay, well, uh, thank you, Toby. Thank you. Also, I feel very honored to actually be invited to uh, participate in your podcast uh, series. And um, I'm coming quite uh, unprepared. So I'm just going to speak what comes to my mind when you ask this question, right? So there's there's two things um, that I think I would like to talk about. One is the research and the other is that uh, I believe and that has become stronger over time um, as I'm kind of ending perhaps my academic career not too long from now, uh, how important it is to take care of yourself and to do things that don't have anything to do with scholarship, but do have things to do with community and connection and friendship and just doing other things that one enjoys taking care of one's body and one's mind and um, you know uh, finding some joy I guess while uh, the world around seems so exasperating and uh, really headed in into horrible directions right so um, in terms of research as uh, you know, uh, I, for a long time, was working on uh, indigenous cinemas and different kinds of video activism related to um, movements of decolonization and um, the way that uh, kind of interrogating how uh, media, how especially film and video is being used in these forms of activism, right? Uh, more recently, I've been... Um, I've joined the many who are talking about the Anthropocene and who are thinking about the end of the world and the catastrophes that are uh, unraveling in front of us. But I have been really intrigued 
you know, by, well, critical positions toward the idea of Anthropocene, starting with Jason Moore's notion of the Capitalocene, that we should rather speak of a Capitalocene than an Anthropocene, in order to um, uh, clarify that not all humans are the same, that not all humans are equally responsible and involved in what is, or even affected by what is uh, uh, unraveling in this world at the moment with accelerating speed. But also um, because Jason Moore includes the labor of non-humans, the what he calls cheap, cheap nature, right? So now I'm looking at a at conceptions um, of relationality that are infinitely more complex, I think, than what the concept of Anthropocene is able to to afford. And so then that jives with um, my continued interest in how indigenous organizations, activists, artists, filmmakers how they approach the subject matter. So not necessarily from uh, the perspective of art and art institutions and um, amazing sometimes, uh, uh, you know, impacting artworks uh, that circulate rather in um, art galleries and in places where more affluent audiences might be found, more educated audiences might be found, but kind of to look at uh, what is coming out of the the margins from the margins of 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 that world and uh the response has been in so from my perspective what i've been seeing is this how do we carry on um in ruination so as the world is being continuously more ruined it's not that we are facing a moment of apocalypse or a sudden end, right, the comet hits and now uh, melancholia or something, but uh, rather it's a decline and the decline is accelerating, but it is still so slow that we barely notice that it keeps getting worse all the time. But in the meantime, over a human lifetime, we continue to live with it. And so then the question is, how can we live with it differently? How can we uh, address all these dimensions um, of interconnectedness between humans and non-humans, between um, different forms of exploitation and different forms of restoring and uh, reviving, let's say, right, against the odds. So that's what I'm interested in. Yeah. And you've given us, in a sense, three topics there. One is, and they're interrelated, I think. One is Indigenous activism, screen activism, cultural production in the interest of decolonization. The second is alternatives and survival to the horrors brought by environmental destruction. And the third is self-care, community friendship. Yeah, have I got that roughly right? Yeah. Uh-huh. So um, if we go back, back, back in your scholarship, as people like to call it in the United States, we see several books, both monographs authored by you and also books edited by you as well as special issues and journal articles and so on that are about some of these topics with reference largely to Latin America in terms right. of the empirical cases that you look at, but informed by theoretical ideas that are even broader. So I wondered if you'd mind telling us a wee bit about those books, maybe starting with the, the monographs. You've got one from 
maybe 15 years ago and one from about five years ago, if I've got that right. Yeah, so it seems to be that my uh, my rhythm of publication is every 10 years I managed to uh, give birth to a book. So the first one, Indianizing Film, was 2009, I believe. And then the second one, uh, The Open Invitation, is 2019. So, yeah, that's like five years ago now. Um, so uh, Indianizing Film grew out of the dissertation and uh, was expanded, but it was uh, really this just baffling moment, responding to the baffling moment that I experienced in graduate school when uh, we were studying indigenista literature, for instance, um, uh, representations of indigeneity, what that means for mestizaje and the Latin American identity and the conceptions of Latin American nationhood, through cultural production, through transculturation, all this stuff. And all of a sudden, um, uh, Catherine Benham, who actually had uh, organized a film festival and brought indigenous filmmakers from Latin America to uh, Duke where I was studying at the time. And it was just mind blowing. So here are these indigenous, usually subjects of representation um, in middle-class, upper-class uh, authored works, right? That we are studying in a you know university classroom. Uh, and all of a sudden you have indigenous peoples with their films responding and uh, saying different things so so to you know not make the story too long basically i then ended up going um to the andes i went to peru and to bolivia and ended up uh, spending some time in colombia and in ecuador but uh was really astounded to find that bolivia had this amazing um tradition of cinema of filmmaking uh, that uh, in, entailed testimonial films, so collaboration with Quechuas and Aymaras, and that now, uh, at the time, relatively recently, uh, so I was researching this in 1999, 2000 mostly, and the, the movement had begun in 1996, where uh, with the help of new digital, first VHS and then quickly digital video recording uh, and editing capacities, you, there was an enormous access, right? And there was a whole network of communication that was bypassing all kinds of uh, institutions and distribution centers that are more um, commercially oriented or uh, in the hands of any kind of media corporations. And instead, this kind of underground movement of uh, not just documentary films and ad hoc recordings, but also fictions. And so I was really interested in in just exploring what these what these films uh, might be able to contribute to concerns that we were having about, for instance, the relationship between uh, gender and decolonization, or uh, how we might think about capitalism and imminence, um, whether there is indeed uh, no outside possible to capitalism or what is going on with reciprocal economies. Right? So, so that was um, what informed that first book, Indianizing Film, and um, I, yeah, there is a lot more to say about that, but it it it, it was an amazing um, experience for me to to do that, and it involved a lot of time spent in Latin America, in especially in South America, especially um, in Bolivia. At the end, uh, the second book came so in uh, two thousand eight. 
uh, we adopted uh, my daughter, Cassandra, and all of a sudden I had a baby in the home. And uh, then the book came out and um, in 2009, and I was starting to work on a new project, but I found it really difficult to travel with a small child, especially to Bolivia or any kind of highlands, right? And I know people that have been able to do that, that have taken their kids along sometimes too, um, uh, and just like done their work anyway. But for me, that was very difficult. Uh, I, I just couldn't really do that. So I ended up then shifting attention to Mexico, which has always been really close to my heart. And it is where I first learned Spanish. So it was a, in a sense of return to, to um, a place in Latin America, very different from South America, very different from Bolivia. Um, but I was intrigued. I became really intrigued with an uprising that happened in Oaxaca in 2006. Um, it's been called the Oaxaca Commune, right? It was led by an organization called the um, Asamblea, Asamblea de los Pueblos de Oaxaca or the um, People's Assembly of uh, Oaxaca. And uh, it was basically a movement that took over the city center of the capital of the state of Oaxaca and governed it for six months. And uh, during this time, you had there was an enormous amount of people that traveled there that were intrigued from the U.S., from Europe, from other parts of Mexico. And they all came with video cameras, cell phone cameras, which were now available and were recording in real time. They were creating documentaries in, in real time. But then there was a, an enormous proliferation of all these media recordings uh, edited into different kinds of documentaries. So there was a, they, they established an indie media center where this uh, footage was collected, where a lot of the photographs were being collected at the time. And from this archive, people made different documentaries. And they all recycled pretty much the same footage, but they were they were different. They were different uh, kinds of documentaries. They they shed different lights on different parts of of what was important to people. So uh, I was looking at that in relation to the Zapatista uh, other campaign, which was happening at the same time, uh, and found myself really intrigued by something else, which was a, a shift in, in affect. So the subtitle of the open invitation of that second book is uh, something, the politics of affect and Mexico, video activism, the politics of affect in Mexico, I think is the subtitle to that, uh, to my second book. Um, and, and so it was grappling with the difference between the more revolutionary, uh, committed cinema of the 1960s and 70s, which is very earnest, often uh, rageful uh, in trying to incite, you know, like a revolutionary activism that is ultimately trying to uh, pursue a similar solution as the, the Cubans did, right? The, to take over the state uh, via violent means in a condition where violence is already present. And so in this case, in Oaxaca, it was different. It was all... Um, so, so the, the, the occupation happens for six months and is then bloodily, horribly repressed in November of 2006. The people are disappeared, tortured, people die, and it's, it's horrible. But the films that are coming out of this movement, they mostly are happy 
in some way or another, they are finding joy and optimism and they are speaking of persistence. So for me, this had to do with the politics of affect. This had to do with how do we understand emotion in relationship to revolution and to social engagement. Um, my students were reacting um, really positively toward these films. You right? write so about that in the, the book, I think. Sorry, yes, I do. Reaction, yeah. Yes, because because it was stunning to me how you know they would sit back and get all depressed if you show them third cinema, and then uh, I would show them some videos from either the Zapatistas or the Oaxaca uprising, and they'd be inspired and motivated. And yes, we can do things here. We can make changes, and and uh, it was uplifting. So that's that second book. I don't know if there's going to be a third book. I still have another five years, I guess, if I keep with my rhythm of production on books. But uh, I have been uh, working on articles since then. So I, I wrote one major article that's going to be uh, forthcoming in the Journal for Cinema and Media Studies on the work that I'm doing now. And, and I'm currently thinking about a second, like I've started writing a second longer sustained piece. And you also edited a couple of books, I think. Yes. Oh, gosh. Uh, so the last one I edited was together with Bert and um, Ana Rosa Duarte, who was supposed to be part of the editing team, but then she ended up not uh, wanting to or not having time to contribute too much to the editing process. But she was very much involved in the conversation. So Bert Wamak Weber and uh, Ana Rosa Duarte are part of Yochelka, which is a Mayan, Yucatec um, video art and video uh, training and collective uh, of makers. Uh, they're based in Merida in, in the Yucatan in, in Mexico. And part of that book, uh, for my inspiration was, I want to know more about what is going on in terms of the complexity of indigenous uh, media production in, in Latin America. And I don't have time to travel that much so I was mm. I was able to travel briefly to Oaxaca and I took uh, my daughter Cassandra and my husband with me and we stayed for a while but in the end um, it wasn't possible to do the same kind of research as I had done for Bolivia but this edited book um, was also to recognize that there are so many people doing really interesting work already and let's highlight that and so we we edited this book on Mexican um collaborative films, uh, collaborative indigenous community media, and just showed the you know vast variety of, of what that means and what it entails and how it also uh, is not really confinable to within the borders of the Mexican nation state. Before and this that, is adjusting the lens. Yes, that's adjusting the lens. Mm -hmm. And before that, we edited one, I think that we had first published in Social Identities, uh, it was a series of essays that we then converted into a book. What is it called? Uh, is it this, is, this happens when you get older. You can't remember anything anymore. Digital media, when... something, something, and speculative yeah. capitalism. Yes, that was. Does that sound That's right? That <laughs> Hold it. I'll just, I'll, one moment, Prof. I'll look up what the something, something was. I should have a copy. Cultural production. Yes, there we go. <laughs> <laughs> So that was a collaboration with um, my colleague and friend Susan Antebi and uh, Alessandro Fonasari, who is uh, also my partner, 
and also a colleague. And it grew out of um, a working group that we had here. And that was really fun. And uh, yeah, first it was a collection of essays that we published in Social Identities. And then later we uh, published it as, a, as an edited book. And gosh, the other ones, they are... Um, I was more uh, added in as a co-editor on Indisciplinar las Ciencias Sociales. That was a long time ago. Um, that was a collaboration with Catherine Walsh in, in Ecuador and a whole bunch of people uh, that grew out of work, working groups there and, and just like also tried to uh, put decolonial thinking from Latin America in onto the map, I guess, right? To say it exists and highlight it in different aspects of it. One of the things you explain in your work that might be handy for listeners who are not familiar with these terms is the difference between colonial, post-colonial, decolonial. I'm wondering yeah. if you might venture into a wee explanation of those terms. I find it really difficult because I would now want to add a settler colonial, right, as well. So right. so now we're talking um, about all these different uh all these different ways of thinking. So in, in Latin America, uh, in the early 90s, in cultural studies, there was a discussion uh, whether Latin America is post-colonial or not. And it grew out of a dialogue with the subaltern studies group and people working on India and, and post-colonial scholarship that was highly regarded at the time. And, and many people were reading it, even if they were not in English departments or whatever. And um, the, the argument made by some was that Latin America is not uh, post-colonial because it, the countries in Latin America largely became independent at the beginning of the 19th century in the early 1800s. And so they're independent. But then of course, uh, you know, the left and the Marxist left has long been saying that Latin America is subject to neo-colonialism or, or neo-imperialism first by Britain when the Spanish uh, forces left and then by the United States. And so the struggle has to be anti-colonial. But uh, the argument was being made at a time when in Africa and Asia, uh, people were struggling against colonial regimes in anti-colonial struggles to get the colonial uh, power, which was French or British or German or Dutch or whatever it is, right, out of the country. And um, in Latin America, that was never the goal because the colonial, the neo-colonial elites, let's say, that were collaborating with the neo-colonial power were national. So it was, you know, the Argentine national elite was in collusion uh, with the British and the U United uh, States capitalist forces uh, interested in extraction and exploitation. And so it, the, the goal of anti-colonial struggle in Latin America was never exactly the same as it was in, in, in North Africa or as it was in Vietnam, let's say. Right. And yet it was somehow linked and connected. And so then um, you get a eventually what were you know with Quijano and, and Mignolo and, and a whole bunch of uh, people Coronil and Catherine Walsh and uh, Edgardo Lander and gosh there were a, a whole bunch of us at the time when I was a grad student thinking about what it means um, in terms of scholarship in terms of uh, thinking cultural production as kind of contesting the logics of Eurocentrism 
but from a Latin American perspective. And so that's where this decolonial thinking starts to emerge as a concept and, and responds to what Quijano called the coloniality of power, right? This three-pronged working together of racism, uh, epistemological uh, privileging of Eurocentric ideas, and um, the economic uh, suppression of people, right? And exploitation of people. And so uh, I think for a lot of people, it has remained on that epistemological level, the decolonial thinking. So how can we um, highlight indigenous thought, uh, indigenous ideas about things, um, indigenous uh, conceptions of how you know racism has worked, how what futurity for indigenous peoples might look like, um, all these kind of you know epi- so an epistemological approach, right, uh, to understanding uh, how we might contest. The colon- what is called the coloniality of power, right? But uh, in recent years, and uh, what I'm really intrigued by is, well, uh, Shannon Speed wrote a very sh- short little piece that I find incredibly good um, that is called The Structures of Settler Capitalism that was uh, published not too long ago, maybe 2017, I can't remember now um, exactly the year, but it argues that uh, Latin America is settler colonial, just like the United States, Australia, uh, New Zealand, um, right, Aotearoa. And so uh, what what does that mean in terms of how we are understanding what is going on in Latin America? And how does that draw our attention back, in a sense, as well, to settler occupation and to current forms of extraction and extractivism in Latin America? So I guess also one of the interesting things in there for me is gender, because these things are always relevant, of course, and also slavery, imported slavery. So the Spanish and the Portuguese had different sexual policies from those of the 19th century European imperialists in Africa in Asia and so on. And more rape and more intermarriage and hence the mestizaje or mixedness of which we speak. I think that's a really big, important distinction. And the other interesting uh, distinction is the situation of African-descended people. So, for example, in the last census in Mexico, what had normally been the case that roughly a quarter of the population identified as indigenous And for for some listeners, this is just to say that unlike in the the white settler colonies that you've mentioned, in Latin America, mostly indigenous means 100% indigenous with indigenous language and not mixed the way that it can mean that in Aotearoa, New Zealand, Canada, United States, etc. But with the new category that was introduced in the 2020 census in Mexico, you can say you're Mm Afro-Mexican for the first time. And it's not unreasonable to suggest that the decrease in people identifying as indigenous from 26% to 20% is explained by the fact that 6% of people identified as Afro-Mexican. Yeah, where they probably had to choose, though, then, right? Because a lot of people are mixed, both indigenous and uh, African. Oh, yes, but you you could be both. But people, uh, because 
the creation of the category was a response mm-hmm. to social movements wanted to identify as being counted and understood in a particular mm-hmm. way. And, of course, there were Afro-Mexicans before there were Afro-Mexican slaves. It's a complicated story. But as in much of Latin America, but by no means all of it, the African story is much more complicated than it is elsewhere because, again, this is not to tell you something you don't know. It's just for context for the audience. Right, right. Most of the slaves in the Americas were brought by the Portuguese and then sold to the Spanish. And most of the slaves were, in fact, in were not in the United States. They were quite a small number. Most mm-hmm. of them were in Brazil. Uh, they were in Colombia. They were in some of these other places. Right, is... and in the Caribbean, right? So many of them were also mm-hmm. on the islands. Um... Absolutely. Absol- well, there are, there are still Colombian islands that are all black, some of right. which, by the way, are populated by people who speak perfect English and with a Scottish accent <laughs> and do the yeah. Scottish sword dance. and regard themselves as Scottish, never having been there, and not as Colombian, because uh, getting back to your point about British neo-colonialism, for those, again, who don't know, between, as you say, the successful struggles for independence and the First World War, the British were the dominant economic force, and then it becomes the US. But these are folks for whom Scottish accountants were their quasi-imperial controllers but didn't actually kill them like mm-hmm. the Spanish had done and the Colombians had done. Anyway, it's it's just to say there are these interesting elements that I think are other things that make Latin America stand out from the sorts of anti-colonial movements that were around when I was growing up. Right. No, and I think it's really important that you uh, point that out uh, about the the very different kind of racial and gender politics involved in 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 this, which is part of why it was also argued for so long that Latin America can't be considered a settler colonial country because people indigenous peoples were not confined to reservation, and instead you have all these uh, mixed race uh, descendants, say right where. Uh, in in the U.S., it is based on a system of of radical segregation, right? And I, I'm not so familiar with uh, Australia and um, New Zealand, but uh, or you know, Canada pretty much is the same way, right? It is also uh, people on territories on reservations confined, and the racial politics is one of racial purity and whiteness. Whereas in, in, in Latin America, it is still a politics of whiteness, but now the idea is that over generations, there will be a whitening that occurs after the, you know, the mostly forced, like you're saying, mostly the rape of indigenous and Afro-descendant women um, produces this kind of mixed race, uh, what Vasconcelos called la raza cosmica, right? The cosmic race. And yeah. It might be worth giving people a picture of La Raza Cosmica and Vasconcelos because in many ways it's a sort of social evolutionary, frighteningly social Darwinist perspective. Yeah, it's awful. In other ways, it's quite challenging for white supremacy. Yes. 
And so that was the point, right? It was, uh, you know, Latin America very much already in a in a position of inferiority vis-a-vis the emerging imperial power that the United States was to become, and the European uh, very dis- racist discourses toward Latin America then rescuing their position against the the discourses that proclaim that only uh, pure non mixed races would be intellectually. Uh, feasible, right, that they would have a future, and that in that sense, uh, kind of prolonging Hegel's idea of of the progress of civilization, right, Um, now saying, no, the true progress of civilization occurs through miscegenation, right, through cultural and biological mixing, but if you read Vasconcelos close enough, then you see that, um, what does he say, the the, the black race uh, gives the physical power and the indigenous also or something, and the white race will give the intellect. And in this mixing, um, we will move forward. How wonderful. And, and you get that in Simon Bolivar a century earlier, where he loves the idea of what we would call mestizaje because it brings together the violence of the native and the civilization mm-hmm. of the Catholic European. And yeah. The, these two will, will form together. Now, this is, of course, prior to Darwin, and it's thanks to Darwin that we get Vasconcelos. But there is something interesting there, and it, it's a bit ghoulish for me to say it's interesting and smile as I do so, because, of course, it's had despicable effects. But I do think the anti-purely white supremacist position is of value, is important, especially in what was going on in the late 19th century and throughout the 20th and on into the 21st. And, yeah. and I guess that's part of... Sorry, go ahead, Prof. No, no, um, I, I agree. Uh, it, and especially... Uh, so what, what has been interesting to me, uh, as I said you know, earlier when, when I um, told you that I'm interested in how people continue to live with ruination and in ruination, right? Um, So there is this whole idea about futurity, which is, of course, a huge uh, point of discussion in Black radical thought in the United States, right? Where the the idea of, well, where is the future? Who has the future? How are we continuing to live gets uh, appropriated, gets vested from all these discourses that we were just... um, you know, remembering and and talking about briefly. And now it becomes a possibility of, um, you know, what uh, Sadia Hartman calls wayward lives, right? How can we imagine the future as such for, for, for Black people in the United States where we're living in a regime of continued unbelievable violence against racialized bodies, right? And then this starting to dialogue and resonate with indigenous or native uh, efforts to restore and to create futurity for indigenous and native peoples in, in, in North America, right? And this newfound kind of, which I think is an emerging and really important uh, moment for Latin American studies, this interest in com- placing in dialogue what native studies and black studies is doing in the U.S., with what we are thinking from decolonial perspectives in Latin America and what Latin Americans are thinking. And part of that is, of course, this recognition that you're mentioning that finds its way into the census in Mexico, right? But the other impact scholarship as well in terms of how how do we um, read each other? It's always been a problem that the North cannot read Spanish, 
but the Spanish often uh, Spanish speakers often can read English, right? So we're still looking at that. But I think there is increasing uh, efforts to to put to create these kind of dialogues to to recognize in that sense settler colonialism not anchored around miscegenation but around occupation and genocidal practices, economic uh, genocidal pra- practices, extractivism, um, and and racism, right? And in that sense, see that we can learn from each other uh, in both respects, in understanding oppression and in, st- in understanding uh, how we might think about futures and where settler colonial people like myself or yourself, right? And I guess if you're living in Spain right now, I'm not... I'm not sure if you freed yourself from the settler colonial condition, but um, you know you've inhabited it at times in your life, and I'm certainly inhabiting it uh, ever since I came to the United States 32 years ago or something. So how do we fit into that, right, as white people? Well, uh, I lived in Mexico during the first two waves of the pandemic. I was working there for three years, and every now and then I'd walk down the street. And someone would say, fuera pulpo, (laughs) (laughs) which is pretty funny, like get out octopus, right? Right, right. And I actually wrote this on Facebook because I couldn't quite work out what was being said. It turned out that this was what young women would say to guys who were hitting on them in an unwelcome way. Oh, I did not know that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, you've got your hands all over me. Fuera pulpo, get off me, you damn octopus, right? Now, the person who said this to me was probably 80 years old and quite little, and I was just walking past her in the street, so it wasn't that. But it was something, and it was interesting in that, apart from people who told me what you and I both didn't know, which is that it's women saying, get get your ten fingers away, um, it was seen as a kind of racialized critique or, or attack. But one of the other things that happened to me a lot living in in Mexico and before that in Colombia was that the moment when I felt accepted by local people, by which I mean Afro-Colombians, Afro-Mexicans, indigenous people, the popular classes, as they're called in Latin America, that often, as you know, correlate with race, was when they would racialize me. So if I'd been going to the corner store for long enough, and I was in a line of 10 people, and they didn't know the other nine who were mestizo or black, whatever, they would say, oye, where? I would, you know, hi, white dude. And that's not an aggressive, nasty thing. It's Mm -hmm. we recognize you as part of our community, Mm -hmm. and you must be known in a racialized way. If we knew your profession, and we know it would be a profession, not a job, then we would call you that too. And those racial and class markers are quite fascinating, quite difficult for people from Europe and the United States and Canada and these other places to get, I think. Mm -hmm. And so there is a really different racial formation that nevertheless, as you say, can get ideas from and and give ideas to movements and academic formations in these richer countries. There's no question about that. So I had an, a very interesting experience um, personally when uh, we spent a year, a sabbatical year, 2018, 2019 in southern Chile, uh, where I was 
um, wanting to do research on uh, Mapuche uh, cultural production and Mapuche notions of settler colonialism and resistance against settler colonialism. And, you know, I had spent a lifetime going to Latin America and saying I'm German. Uh, when I was very young, I would say I don't speak English. And people would be very generous uh, in trying to help me improve my Spanish by speaking Spanish with me and instead of uh, English, right? And um, I would always be seen not as the neo-imperial colonial force, or as a local uh, settler colonial force, right? But in Southern Chile, it was not like that because Southern, Southern Chile, of course, was colonized by the Germans and they are still uh, in positions of political and economic power. The discourses were uh, unbelievably racist. Some of them that we uh, witnessed, uh, not all, but there were significant uh, and a lot of it, right? And whenever I would, uh, you know, try to, work, talk, uh, make contact with Mapuche activists, I I said, I'm German. And the reaction, of course, then was, well, then you are clearly the enemy. But it helps because you position yourself into, okay, you know, now we're, we're back. Uh, the Germany carries its own history of genocide, right? How do you position yourselves, uh, yourself in a um, multi-generational responsibility toward the historical past right and it, it was also interesting to me because when I told my mother who is still alive and she lives in in Germany she's going to be uh, 85 I think this uh this year when I told her uh about the German colonization of southern Chile she was like oh but they didn't teach us that in school so uh there's also a German total unawareness of its own own colonial history that can be um reworked in, in those in this context right in this situation. yeah absolutely and of course there are segments of Brazil that also have that pattern of German colonization and continued oligarchic importance you know in Mexico City the most exclusive gym complex is the German club <laughs> and it has the biggest outdoor pool and all the rest of it. And it was, it had a whites-only policy for decades. Wow. And now it doesn't. Yeah. What that means is light-skinned mestizo oligarchs and their children are members. And they're trained in things by darker-skinned other Mexicans. Yeah. But the, the German club remains a big deal. And, of course, German schools are a big deal in much of Latin America. Yes, right. absolutely. In, in southern Chile, they are, uh, together with the British uh, schools, they are the best school system that you can enter, either the German school system or the British uh, yeah. school system. And, and you, meet, you can meet people from the lighter-skinned oligarchy who went to American, British or German schools, and they speak they all speak English, but they speak English with a British accent or a German accent or an American accent, having never been to those countries. It, it is it is amazing. I was lucky in that when I was I was identified as Italian or French by people, by and large. So I was not quite as terrifying, you know, terrifying is the wrong word, condemned in the way that I might have been. Yeah. Here in Spain, I am seen as a cien por ciento gringo. The minute I open my mouth. When you, as being from England or being. No, from, no, from the United States. From the United States. Oh, gringo in the Mexican sense, yeah. Right, right. Wow. 
100%. Yeah, I know. It's the first time in my life. But I then try speaking English and they realize there's something weird about my accent. But anyway, enough about me. Prof, before we finish, I wanted to ask you two things, if I may, and then throw to you in case there are things you'd like to add to or subtract from what we've discussed. Is that okay? Yeah. So the first thing is to ask you to expand on the second of the topics that you first mentioned, which is the movement from thinking about an Anthropocene to think about a, an, a, a not very pretty word in English, capital, capitalocene. Can you explain some of that for us? And perhaps for a bit of context, your relationship to Marxism, which seems to me to be always there in your books, albeit in, I wouldn't say a fraught form, but a complex dialectical, you know, Adorno style form. Yeah. Um, thinking of how can I explain that I, and, and why, and also I'm thinking maybe why is it the case, right? But uh, so, you know, um, I did all my studies up to the master's degree uh in, in Germany, I attended uh, the uh, Goethe University in Frankfurt, uh, where the famous Frankfurt School uh, comes out of, right? Uh, when I was an undergraduate, the equivalent of an undergraduate, um, we had to read Marx and Feuerbach and, and all these uh, uh, folks, but not in a, uh, I, I don't think I ever was like very rigorous in terms of Marxist approaches, but it was just something that it seemed impossible not to see right so so let's see when you're when you're interested in latin america how can you not be interested in in the political economy of what is going on in latin america why latin america is what it is and how do you how if what we ask how do we position ourselves as white people you know in relationship to our our, our studies right you have to ask about politics and economics and economics is capitalism and how do we understand capitalism we have to understand it as social relations that entail uh, uh, oppression and exploitation, right? So, so I guess it's um, always been there. And in Latin America, Marxism is very important. If you're thinking from a left critical perspective, you cannot get around it. It has been so important in terms of how not just intellectuals, but all kinds of people have understood their conditions of being is through uh, an analysis of global capitalism and what it has meant for conditions of life there. And remember, um, when when we met uh, many, many years ago for the first time, uh, one of our conversations was about how do you do film analysis? How do you study film? And uh, we agreed in a sense that you can't study film simply as a textual practice. If you're coming from a Latin American perspective, you all, always have to ask, how is it possible that this film was even made? How is it intervening? What kind of corporate media context exists that this intervention happens? And how can it even happen then if there is no access to Hollywood industries or, or other uh, global uh, media corporations, right? If you're coming with very small amounts of funding, right? Little money or no money is being recuperated. So, so in that sense, it's... Uh, I think um, Marxism has always been there. I've known people, lots of people that dedicate more time and uh, detail-oriented 
study to to Marx, right? But for me, it's it's more uh, okay. So I'm just going to stop it right there and then go to what you're saying about the Anthropocene and the Capitalocene. So for me, uh, more is important because while Deepesh Chakravarti is trying to find a dialogue, in a sense, between the folks who are thinking uh, the Anthropocene from the uh, sciences, from the hard sciences, and from the humanities, and the postcolonial Marxist scholarship, uh, more is drawing our attention to the non-human in this whole process, in the process of capitalist expansion that goes through colonialism. Right. So so Moore says, you know, the Industrial Revolution does not begin in the 19th century. It begins in 1450. It begins in 1450 with the establishment of the first plantations in Madeira, um, where the forest is cut down. So now you have the non-human labor of trees right, that have grown for hundreds of years that are being fed into the sugar mills, which are part of the whole process that is um, fueling the uh, emerging capitalism, let's say at the time. And so uh, for me, that is compelling. It is more compelling than a lot of, uh, I don't want to be dismissive because I appreciate the study of art and aestheticization in a sense that is happening, right? Aesthetic approaches and efforts to try to, I don't know, shake people awake, even though we all see it or you know, many of us are at this point, we don't want to see it anymore because it is too depressing and we're just going to close our eyes and try to run away. Um, but uh, the Anthropocene loses its uh, political edge, I think, the political edge that is necessary. And it is much easier for a thinking that comes without taking into consideration the important role of capitalism and colonialism to endorse these um, these uh, geotechnological innovations that they're sponsoring. So a couple of weeks ago, I read that they are already now shooting silver uh, amalgamate into the clouds over Southern California to uh, experiment with making it rain uh, here when they want it to be raining. They did not ask my permission. I don't know what is coming down with these silver molecules now that are raining on me. It's, it's just insane. And they're talking about uh, putting you know, mirrors in the stratosphere to shield the sun. So these kind of tech solutions um, combined with the Elon Musk fantasy of let's all, uh, those of us who have a lot of money and uh, our mail, let's go to Mars, right? This, these kind of technologically fueled fantasies, and they also pertain to the idea of green energy and uh, the green economy being a way that we can continue to live the lifestyle of modernity and that everybody can have the lifestyle of modernity and that that is somehow compatible with um, futurity on Earth, right, in the sense of future as such for living things on this planet, Um that's an illusion, and it is closer to Anthropocene, in a sense, thinking, than it is to a more capitalocene-informed critique. It, it, I don't know if I'm being clear, right? But I think if you take into consideration capitalism and colonialism in why we have come where we are, why we are, how did we arrive at the situation at the globe, 
on the globe at this point, right? And we trace that history as a history of uh, informed by politics and uh, capitalist economy and modernity thinking and heteronormative uh, patriarchal thinking as well, right? Then there is a very dense web of forms of mutually reinforcing uh, oppressions and discourses and practices that need to be confronted and they cannot be solved by little technological fixes or by more electric cars and excessive or expansive lithium mining right so, so I, I do get answer. passionate about this I, I'm, I'm noticing now again. Oh, it's very much in sync with what the scientists that I've been recording with say they're very opposed to these technological fixes. They're very opposed to the discourse of growth. They're very opposed to continued colonial extraction. It's a very big deal. Yeah. Uh, so my, my last question before throwing to you is if you could expand a bit on the notions of self-care, friendship, community, and how they're mattering to you. So um, as you know, before we were talking briefly, I was having some health challenges and uh, during the pandemic, and um, I had before that been on sabbatical and had left and uh, lived in in Bolivia in in Chile for a year, where there were, uh, despite all the other things you know that were going on, there were people that became very supportive there, and uh, they within a year I made friends, what I would consider friends, but then I was not able to go back because of the pandemic and because of uh, other restrictions. And so I, I couldn't travel back, but what I had noticed was how important it was for me while I was living there for a year to have um, So uh, strange how the recording would cut off right when we're getting to the moment of self-care. <laughs> and, and right when you were talking Enough about... Enough time on Zoom already. We're done and here. you were unable to speak to friends. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but you were just developed. <laughs> so, so I think friends are uh, what help us uh, just be healthy, be alive, find a joy and find the energy that we need to carry on day to day right so that became important in Chile and then when I um, came back here and I was having health issues and the pandemic was happening and I uh, just had become quite isolated and uh, physically weak and not really able to bounce back a friend here uh, insisted that I start doing this exercise this water exercise with her and I was like no this is really not for me I don't want to do any water exercise it sounds cold and I don't want to do it and she said no we're going and we're doing it and I'm like all right I'll go with you right so I have then since then been doing aqua aerobics since uh, 2021 it's a community I go three times a week and we laugh and every morning even when I'm in a really bad mood I will go and there is a community of elder ladies I'm one of the younger ones there and we uh, just lift each other up I guess we're joking around we're moving we're exercising but there is a a community that is not even let's say always necessarily politically on the same uh, uh, page right it is not necessarily a community that translates into 
true activism, which is another form of collective uh, organizing, collective doing, getting together, which I think is also very important, but I might not be um, uh, as involved in, right? But the community, just the community itself of doing something together and laughing and having a, a, a good time uh, sets the ground for other work, sets the ground for us to be able to continue on. So it's super important, not just because it's going to keep you healthy or this or that, but it, there is something more to it, which is, um, you know, in the open invitation, uh, I think I end one of the chapters like that. Like you cannot um, sustain the struggle for social justice on rage alone. It has to it has to come from joy because there is more strength in the end um, from joyfulness. And, and that, of course, is uh, Spinoza, right? It really goes back to Spinoza. So now, Prof, if I wanted to hand things over to you, lest there be things you'd like to say you haven't yet said. You know, Toby, I can't think of anything really that I... I want to say, but I, I do want to say that, you know, it's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, seeing you for a while uh, now on the Zoom screen here. And um, yeah, it's like, you know, thank you so very much for inviting me to to participate in this podcast series. I was listening to a couple of other uh, of your other recordings that you've done. They're wonderful, um, inspiring. So um, it's great that you're doing that. And also, you know, this is my first podcast participation Woo. So, thank you again <laughs> we're very honored thank you so much very very much Friar. all the best